All right, welcome to the podcast for Two Consoles Too Late. This is uh, Jackson Keeler. I'll be your host. We're going to talk about uh, retro gaming, movies, media, and current events. It's going to be great, so let's get started. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It's one of my favorite holidays of the year. I consider it a holiday. It's always a lot of fun. Every year I... I put corned beef and cabbage in the slow cooker with potatoes. Uh, that's a dish I only make maybe twice a year, but it's always been a favorite. I always watch some movie, uh, usually it's either Patriot Games or Boondock Saints uh, or The Departed, which doesn't really have much to do with St. Patrick's Day, but that's always another go-to. Um, I was trying to think of a video game um, you know, that you could play on St. Patrick's Day, and I, I, I couldn't think of one. Um, the only one that comes to mind is Siphon Filter 3, and they have, they have one level, I think, that takes place in Ireland, but I don't think there's a lot of, you know, Irish games out there. But it's fun to uh, for me to celebrate the Mick side of my Kraut Mick heritage, and uh, that's a Godfather reference. So anyway, uh, happy St. Patty's Day. Let's get going. In this episode, um, I'm going to call this the documentary episode. I'm going to cover two documentaries. Uh, first is going to be Playing With Power, the Nintendo documentary. Also, The Last Blockbuster, which just came up on Netflix. So the documentary Playing With Power just came out. Uh, it's playing on Crackle. And it's a, a five-episode series that looks into the history of Nintendo. Sean Astin uh, narrates the movie. Of course, he was in Goonies and Lord of the Rings, notably. It has very dramatic music, and the music kind of reminds me of Oblivion, and it adds something to the documentary. All the episodes are about an hour long. Um, there's a lot of long montages and segues. It's really kind of boring, um, and especially since it's on Crackle, there's, a, there's just a lot of ads, so you have to get through the ads. The documentary itself doesn't cover anything new that I guess that we didn't already know. Uh, once again, it goes into the console wars of Nintendo, PlayStation, Sega, and Xbox. Um, they talk about the Panasonic 3DO, um, but they don't talk about uh, the TurboGrafx-16, which I, I, they always get snubbed, and I never like that. There's a lot of feature commentators in the documentary. Um, Will Wheaton, of course, he was in Star Trek as Wesley Crusher and uh, made a lot of cameos. Um, one that comes to mind is always Big Bang Theory. Tommy Tellerico, uh, who's developing the Intellivision Amico. I don't know why that guy just kind of rubs me the wrong way. I mean, in the documentary, it looks like he just got out of bed. I mean, you know, no, no offense. I mean, so do I. What I didn't know and I learned is that he did the soundtrack uh, for Prince of Persia, which was a game I loved on the Game Boy. And then there's Sean Bloom. Uh, he was a game counselor for Nintendo. He appeared in the documentary on Netflix, High Score. And of course, you have the godfather of video games, Nolan Bushnell, um, you know, the founder of Atari. Then you have Trip Hawkins, uh, the founder of Electronic Arts, and he uh, was also the founder of the Panasonic 3DO. Howard Phillips, uh, he was a Nintendo spokesperson. He makes an appearance. And then you have Tom Kalinske, who was the CEO of Sega, who really kind of turned Sega around and took it to Nintendo in the console wars. Playing with Power is just like all video game documentaries that have come out. Um, 
High Score on Netflix and Console Wars, which was on CBS All Access and Amazon Prime. Uh, there's just really nothing new here, but there were a couple takeaways that uh, for me that I enjoyed. One of the first takeaways from the documentary is um, the history of Nintendo's handheld systems. First, uh, you're going to start off, I would say, with the gaming watch. When I was a kid, uh, I had Donkey Kong, and you know it's a little green handheld, um, but that was kind of the the beginning of their uh, innovation into handhelds. Next, of course, you had the Game Boy. That was my my first. I would say video game system before I got a Sega Genesis. And we all know the Game Boy with that horrible, shitty spinach screen and bad graphics. And the batteries always died. When I was a kid, I had to buy a rechargeable pack for my Game Boy because the batteries were always dying. And then they came out with the Game Boy Advance, um, which didn't have a backlit screen yet. And so playing the games... Uh, given the conditions, was still a little difficult. And then you had the Game Boy Advance SP, which actually had a backlit screen. And then eventually you have Nintendo DS and the 3DS. Um, I had a 3DS. I just gave it to a friend. Uh, he's playing Fire Emblem right now. Uh, I, I bought Metroid Samus Returns for the 3DS because I'm sort of a completionist when it comes to Metroid. But I just couldn't get past the controls, so I just gave it to him figuring that he could get better use out of it. And now, you know, eventually you come to the Switch, uh, which is, I would, I would basically call it a, a handheld. Um, I don't have one. I'll, I'll get one eventually when Metroid Prime 4 comes out. Um, one thing I, I thought was interesting in the documentary uh, was about the name Switch because you were, you're switching from either PlayStation or Xbox, which... Um, I, I, I never thought much about the name, but I thought that was really interesting. All right, the next takeaway I got uh, from the documentary was uh, controllers and how Nintendo developed controllers. Uh, the D-pad was first used on the Game & Watch and was eventually patented by Gunpei Yokoi, who developed uh, the, the original Metroid. Um, and it, you know, the NES and the SNES... They had the D-pad, and then you started having a couple more buttons. And then eventually you get to the N64, which uh, had an analog stick and a rumble pack. And PlayStation and Sega, after the release of that, they followed suit. When you talk about controllers and you're talking about the N64, the Super Metroid's director, Yoshio Sakamoto, uh, he explained the reason why Metroid 64 was never developed. This is a quote that I got from uh, Yoshio Sakamoto explaining why Nintendo 64 was never developed. I was actually thinking about the possibility of making a Metroid game for N64, but I felt that I shouldn't be the one making the game. When I held the N64 controller in my hands, I just couldn't imagine how it could be used to move Samus around. So for me, it was just too early to personally make a 3D Metroid. Nintendo at that time approached another company and asked them if they would make an N64 version of Metroid, and their response was that no, they could not. They turned it down, saying that unfortunately they didn't have the confidence to create an N64 Metroid game that could compare favorably with Super Metroid. That's something I take as a compliment to what we achieved with Super Metroid. But then once you get to the Wii, you have uh, the motion controllers, um, the wands. For me, I... I 
thought I wouldn't like them. Um, but now I just, when it comes to playing games like Metroid Prime, I can't imagine uh, not using uh, the wands on the Wii. The only problem with the Wii, uh, the Wii controllers are they're complete battery hogs. And that's just one one thing I just don't like about them, especially if you're really, like I if I'm binging Metroid Prime, um, I have to change my batteries pretty often. Like I would say two or three times to, you know, just to complete the game. Them having those controller, the the wands, really made games a little bit more democratic and accessible. And, um, you know, especially like seniors could start playing these games easily. And there's a great montage in the documentary of people breaking their TVs uh, with the with the wands because they didn't strap them around their wrists. And, you know, the first thing when you start a Wii up, it says, you know, like, all right, let's just be careful here and strap it to your wrist. So I thought that was funny. And then eventually in the documentary, you get to the history of Nintendo's consoles. Um, obviously, you know, you, you start with the Famicom and then um, the Famicom comes here, uh, which was the NES. And then after that, you had the SNES, which were, of course, both, both huge successes. But after the SNES, um, the graphics, I, I, I call them the graphics wars. Um, where each console is trying to one-up the other in graphics. But as far as Nintendo goes, uh, the N64, that was, kind, that was kind of a failure just due to the fact that they, they stuck with cartridges while everyone else were, was going to CD-ROMs, um, PlayStation, Sega, Xbox, TurboGrafx, 3DO. So they were a little behind when it came to uh, the graphics and CD-ROMs. But then after the N64, uh, Nintendo released uh, the GameCube, which was another odd little system. Um, it was square. It had a handle. Um, a lot of them were purple. My, I think mine's purple. Is it? No, mine's black. Um, but the ROMs were really small. But the reason I love that system is twofold. One, it's the system I first played Metroid Prime on. And also because of the, the attachment, the Game Boy Player, which you put on the bottom of the GameCube. And that allows me to play all my Metroid titles from the Game Boy um, on my TV. I'm getting older now, and to play those games on a handheld is getting kind of hard, and I, I would have to wear a reader. So it's really nice for me to be able to play those games and play them on my TV. But the great thing about, I would say, uh, the Wii system is that it was very democratic. But now uh, PlayStation 2 comes out, and PlayStation 2 had some great games. and But the PlayStation 2 could play DVDs, which was a big advancement. And Nintendo eventually comes out with the Wii, but which took CD-ROMs, finally, but it didn't play DVDs. It was, I always considered the Wii a home run uh, just because it was backwards compatible with GameCube and you could you could put your GameCube games in there. But then after the Wii, uh, you move on to the Wii U, which was a bit of a failure. And that failure eventually led to the Switch. I'm always going to love the Nintendo Wii. I think my first experience, and I think a lot of people's first experience and maybe only experience, is uh, playing Wii Sports. I mean, I love bowling, tennis, baseball, golf. It's just, it's fun. 
and also the Metroid Prime trilogy on the Wii. It, it was a it took a game from the GameCube and it made it way better. And when I first started playing Metroid on the Wii, I didn't like it. I was you know because I was so used to GameCube, uh, but now I can. I can't imagine not playing Metroid Prime on the Wii to the point where I might just go back and uh, try to play Metroid Prime on the GameCube just to see, because I, I developed my chops on the on the Wii, and but I first played it on the GameCube. So I might make a video about that, but we'll see. It made games available to seniors. Like my five-year-old, he, he can just pick up a wand and... and you know, we can we can play bowling together. And then once again, uh, you come up to the Switch, which is their latest system. Uh, this is two consoles too late. I don't have one. Um, I'm going to get one eventually when uh, Metroid Prime 4 comes up. Uh, but right now, it's one of the most best-selling systems um, in the world. And to find one right now is really difficult. But that's a testament to Nintendo and what they do as a company. So once again, um, just check it out. It's called Playing With Power. It's a it's an entertaining documentary. It's five episodes. Each episode's an hour long, so there's a little bit of a time investment in there. You're not going to learn anything new, but it, it was good for what it was. The next documentary I want to talk about uh, just came across my Netflix is The Last Blockbuster. It's a great little documentary. Um, it's about the rise and fall of Blockbuster. It's really entertaining. Um, there's lots of featured actors and actresses. Uh, most notably, Kevin Smith, uh, the director of Clerks, which, of course, in that movie, features a small independent video store, uh, which was hilarious. The amazing part about seeing Kevin Smith in this documentary was he's lost a lot of weight. Uh, when I was a kid, I saw him give, I guess, sort of a lecture at um, the university I went to in Towson. And he was a big guy back then, but he's lost a lot of weight and he looks really good. But then it goes into the onset of Netflix and how Netflix supposedly killed Blockbuster, which isn't really true. Funny thing I, I found out from the documentary is that Blockbuster at one point had the ability to buy Netflix and they didn't. So I'm not going to talk about the documentary of the last Blockbuster, but I, I'm going to talk about, I guess, growing up with Blockbuster and all the video rental stores I remember growing up. The first place I, I remember is uh, up the street, there was a shopping center from my house and uh, there was a Rite Aid, which is now Walgreens. Um, but Rite Aid, they started doing video rentals. I remember that, and my grandparents coming down and renting us videos, which was always fun. But in the same shopping center, there was a place, it was an independent called Voice of Video, and it was one of those independents that had a, a pornography section, and it was one of those porn sections with the curtain, not the beads. As a kid, you could peek through this window in the shopping center, and you could see all the different porn titles. Um, why porn VHSs were in such big boxes, I will never understand, but I remember that one pretty good. But the first chain to come to my neighborhood uh, was, a, was a place called Errol's. It's where I rented all my first James Bond movies. Uh, the first one I rented, I remember, was The Spy Who Loves Me. Uh, but Errol's 
uh, eventually ended up closing because about a half mile up the road, Blockbuster opened. After Errol's closed, though, here's a funny thing. It became uh, a used video game store called Video Game Exchange. And that's where I used to get a lot of my Game Boy games and a lot of my uh, Sega games growing up. And then once Blockbuster became a foothold, uh, eventually we got a Hollywood video, which uh, opened up. at. Uh, there used to be an old post office in Lutherville. Uh, they opened up there. In Baltimore, we had uh, an independent called Video American. And that was probably one of the last independent holdouts. And people like John Waters kind of always hold that place and revere it as a good independent video rental store. I have a lot of memories about Blockbuster. Uh, Like I said, the first location for me uh, was in Timonium. It was about like a mile uh, mile up the street from our house. Blockbuster moving in a big chain like that. It was, it was, it was kind of a big thing. It was like, it was like when Domino's first moved into Lutherville. I remember all, all the new releases, uh, they would always be against the walls and they always had like a hundred copies. I remember going to Blockbuster and trying to find a title and if they didn't have it, it being a chain, I could go from Timonium to Hunt Valley, which was about two miles north of I would say my blockbuster and if they didn't have it i used to have to drive three miles east to jacksonville to that location to see if they had it so that's always a fond memory of going from blockbuster to blockbuster trying to find that one movie you wanted to see and of course back then with uh vhs uh of course you had your late fees and god knows how much how much money i spent in late fees at blockbuster and countless other video stores um but the late fees were really annoying. And then uh, also the, the fees, if you didn't rewind the tape and they had the uh, slogan, be kind, rewind to the point where you used to go to electronic stores and they used to sell the tape rewinders. Uh, so I guess you wouldn't get those fees. My son will have absolutely no idea what a VHS tape is to the point where I, I wish I could just find one, show it to him and just see him completely confused. <laughs> Another memory I, I forgot about Blockbuster Video was that they stayed open till midnight, um, which was great, especially, I guess, growing up and being in the restaurant industry. I'd get off at like 10 or 11. I could still roll up to Blockbuster and just grab a movie and head home, which was awesome. I remember they sold, you know, like a lot of popcorn and candy. It was really expensive. Uh, to me, that always made Blockbuster Video feel just a little bit cheesy. But, you know, they had to they had to make money elsewhere elsewhere other than the videos in the documentary they talk about the smell of a blockbuster and that didn't really come to mind i i i don't remember blockbuster smelling a certain way it just seemed like just a standard retail store but they were always bright they were always clean and it was a family safe video rental place and of course they didn't have pornography like like some of the small independents i remember uh a lot of times walking through a uh, blockbuster video with my girlfriend trying to pick out a movie for the night. And they, in the documentary, they go into this, but it would sometimes like you knew exactly what you wanted and you would just go get it. Or you would just end up walking around the store for like a half an hour trying to pick out a movie. You know, she wanted the rom-com. I wanted the action movie and you had to compromise. So there's a lot of memories of blockbuster video and that. And of course, Blockbuster Video had drop boxes and 
we all remember dropping the videos off at the at the Dropbox, hoping you didn't get the late fee. And I think I was one of those people, uh, like I had the Blockbuster card, but I, I always ended up losing it. So every time I checked out a video, I had to use my license. I think I may have been a premium member. Um, this is when Netflix started to come on the scene and Blockbuster videos started doing um, the same business model as Netflix. And it got you, I think, three DVDs a month in the mail. But you could take the DVDs into the store. And I think you had unlimited trade-ins, which was great. And lastly, uh, another takeaway uh, for me, which I thought was funny. They do, in the documentary, they do these cutaways. Um, and there's this uh, wooden cabinet TV. And it's a, it's a Hitachi. And growing up, I had, I didn't have a, we had a wooden cabinet TV. But I also had a Hitachi TV. Wooden cabinet TVs, that's another thing that my son just will never understand. TVs used to be a piece of furniture. But all in all, it's a great documentary. If you have Netflix, definitely go check it out. It's really entertaining. And um, it kind of follows uh, the last, of course, it follows the last blockbuster. And I guess their struggle to stay open. but and also how they created such a cult following. So yeah, check it out on Netflix. And just as a quick update, uh, what I'm doing on the, I would say the video game front, um, I have put down Castlevania three. It, it's just proved to be a little bit too difficult. Uh, I don't like to give up, but it's just proven to be hard. But I did rediscover uh, Prince of Persia, um, seeing that Tommy Tallarico did the soundtrack, which brought it to mind and I used to play that on Game Boy um, so I have it for my NES classic so I'm gonna probably just load that up and try to start playing that again SNES version has better graphics of course but I'm just gonna play it on my NES classic I love that game just because of I guess the gameplay dynamics they were they were very different and that's just a game I used to love growing up I just launched a, a patreon you can check it out at patreon.com backslash two consoles too late. Uh, you can go on there, you can subscribe, and I'm going to start posting some videos, uh, articles, and some poll topics. I just put one up um, about video game remakes, so go check it out at patreon.com backslash two consoles too late. Also, go to anchor.fm and Look me up at Two Consoles Too Late, and there you can leave me a voicemail if you want to do a Q&A. And I just got some custom shirts made from customink.com. Uh, I just put the Two Consoles Too Late logo on there. If you want to check out the shirts, they're on my Facebook at Two Consoles Too Late. If you like one, send me a message, and I can get one made, and you can buy one. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Two Consoles Too Late. I've been your host, Jackson Keebler. Have a good St. Patrick's Day, and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.